Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Penalty Loop Podcast, a podcast about biathlon by Jordan Gottschalk from Penalty Loop and a regular guest, RJ Weiss from Biathlon Analytics. Hey, Jordan, how are you doing? Doing great. How you been, man? Yeah, pretty good. It's been a couple so, weeks. Anything exciting going on in uh, in Calgary? Well, if you call snow exciting in in April, then uh, it still <laughs> still makes me believe that we're not done with the season yet. So, uh, yeah, no kidding, man. It's uh, still hard to to get used to. Although I must say, sleeping in on a weekend is uh, definitely a benefit. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous of that. someday maybe we'll get there, but uh, Ben is <laughs> not quite letting us uh, sleep in too much yet. Hey, we got something new for the summer um, that our listeners haven't heard yet. So um, we are going to uh, dedicate some time for podcasting this summer on um, kind of getting a sense of people in biathlons can be is probably mostly athletes, but also coaches or whoever we can uh, connect with and get an idea of what biathlon looks looks like through their eyes. So um, our first guest will be Canadian former biathlete. He just retired at the end of uh, last season, um, Scott Gow of the Gow Brothers. And um, I just did a, a quick read up. He, uh, he raced almost 200 individual races. 15 on a junior, 34 in oh. IBU, and uh, 142 on the World Cup. And he's, he uh, started on junior in 2007 season and, as I said, ended uh, recently. Had some, some great results on junior. His highest ranking was ninth, IBU. He had a third as the highest. And on the World Cup, he had a fourth as the highest. And on the team, he was even more successful between the three levels. He had 72 races and um, has a second and junior, uh, fourth in IBU and third in the uh, the World Cup. Um, so the, the second place was actually in Canmore at the Youth World Championships. Hmm. Uh, third place best was at the World Championship in Oslo in the World Cup or the world championship at the world cup level. And then of course, recently he uh, did really well at the Olympic games in Beijing, where he had a fifth place in the individual and a sixth place in the, uh, the relay. Yeah. Talk about uh, going out on top. No kidding. Yeah. It's, Just uh, uh, having, having your best performances right there, right there at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we had a chat with him and uh, following a, a bit of a structure that we're going to try to follow with uh, the other people we talked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, super nice guy. was uh, was amazing uh, how much time he he spent with us, and I really enjoyed the <laughs> interview. Yeah, and he he stuck with us. We had a couple of uh, tech malfunctions, and, and he <laughs> was super nice about it, so I appreciate it. Absolutely, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, unless you have something else from the uh, biathlon world you wanted to talk about, no, it's been a, it's been a nice quiet time. I think everybody's been traveling. I, I saw a bunch of Instagram posts of of different athletes in different uh, glamorous parts of the world. I'm quite jealous of all of them. But it, it's interesting they've, they've... to to see them without their uh, rifle on their back and, <laughs> yeah, and their tracksuit on, or not tracksuit, but uh, race yeah. suit. Yeah. But, uh, Hey, they've they've all deserved it. They all they've all well earned it, and um, you know I, I hope they have a 
a good couple of weeks here uh, traveling before getting back to it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Shall we uh, move on to the uh, the new section then? Let's jump okay. in. All right, man. Yodely. Through the eyes of. Can we ask you to just uh, introduce yourself a little bit, just as the person, Scott? Yeah. Well, my name is Scott. I'm a freshly retired biathlete, was racing and training with the Canadian national team for 11 years on the World Cup circuit for the last, I think, seven years, seven, eight years, competed in two Olympics, and uh, yeah, born, born, raised in Calgary, and been living in Canmore since around 2011. Okay, and, and that's, yeah, I'm retired, assuming. going to school, and kind of trying to enjoy some time off from skiing. And when you say school, are you uh, starting a program or? Mm, I've been doing some school part time over the years through. Uh, it's called Athabasca University. They're kind of a correspondence online university. Okay. And so I chipped away, but now I'm registered for kinesiology at the University of Calgary. So I'll okay, cool. get my bachelor's of kinesiology and then kind of go from there. Nice. Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, any hobbies or do you have any idols when you grew up? And was it in biathlon or completely outside of it? Or uh well, idols. I mean, I grew up when Ole Einer Bjorn Dahlen was like, mm. he was in his prime. Like I had a poster of him from huh. the 2002 Salt Lake games. When he, right. I, I think he swept every podium. Or he didn't sweep it. He, he had a gold in every event. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, I mean, there's more events now, but that's still like a crazy <laughs> accomplishment. So I think he had four golds in one Olympics. And so he was always like a biathlon idol growing up. And he was, I mean, he was one of the greatest of all time. Mm. And, you know, he had, I can't remember if he actually broke the hundred mark for individual golds, but he was really close. So yeah, he's one. Absolutely. And then when I was getting, and that that was kind of, I was younger, just getting into biathlon. And then as I got older towards my junior, senior years, that's when like Mark, Martin Forcad took over and kind of became the king of biathlon for a solid seven, eight years, whatever that was. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, they had like my kind of earliest memories watching world cup was Tare Bo as a junior or first year senior winning the overall, which was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then that was like super cool. And then from the next year onward, it was just Martin Forcad <laughs> until Tare's younger brother showed up and he finally like broke through and got his first overall win. And yeah. And then now here we are where Johannes won it a few times and now we have a new winner and it's like, we don't have just one guy dominating anymore, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Ole and Martin were for sure like the big time idols that I looked up to racing. Cool. So uh, how old were you when you, when you actually got into biathlon? So the first, I honestly didn't even know it existed or what it was until I was, until I tried it for the first time, which would have been 11 years old. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I knew what cross country skiing was, but I didn't know there was such a thing as, 
cross country skiing and shooting. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried it at Canada Olympic Park in Calgary. They had a summer camp, tried a bunch of sports, ski jumping, luge, mountain biking. And we did kind of a summer biathlon running and air rifle for an afternoon. Huh. And that and that's how we signed that's up. Cool. Chris and I did it together. We both signned up for like a fall program at COP. And it just mm-hmm. kept building from there. We did the fall program. It was fun. So then we did the winter program, which was uh, doing it on skis. So that was my first time cross-country skiing. And then from there, you shoot air rifles. Then, oh, well, now you're going to shoot a 22. Well, that was really fun. So then we kind of kept going, kept going, kept going. So, yeah, first time ever doing biathlon, I guess, would have been 11. And then at 12, 13, that's when I joined a, like a proper club and mm-hmm. started training more full time. So when you're, when you're going through that, did you, at what point did you, I mean, obviously you were, you were into it at that point, joining a club full time, but what point did you, you know, set it as a goal to make the world cup level, or was that ever anything that you really put in your mind to just sort of you just kept going and going? Yeah, I think that point was probably 16, 17. Like when I went to my first uh, youth world championships, because mm-hmm. that was my first, because up until then, it's kind of just for fun. You kind of treat it like you're training full time, but it's still almost more on the hobby side. Mm-hmm. And you race at, you know, Alberta Cups and maybe you go to Westerns. And then I did my first nationals and that was a lot of fun. But for sure, the first like international experience racing, we were in Italy and like the travel was so cool and novel <laughs> and just the high performance level of all the Europeans we were competing against. It was so different compared to what we were used to mm-hmm. training and racing back home. Like it was such a, it was a much higher level and it was, and it was so much fun. So I think that point I decided that, okay, I actually want to do this and I want to mm-hmm. keep racing at a high performance, like international level. So that's when I became more serious about biathlon and I started looking at it as like a long-term sport career. Right. And then it was probably, that would have been, like yeah 16 ish 17 so then as a junior early senior when i made my first ibu cup and then i qualified for the national team that's when i realized that i was on the right path and that if i kind of stick with it i could see myself at the world cup and eventually the olympic level so it kind of like got serious at 16 17 and then got even more serious at like 21 22 Mm -hmm. when i could kind of see i could see the kind of like the finish line almost it's like Mm -hmm. i was seeing the progression and it's like well once you're on the national team now you're getting really close to like achieving all those goals Mm -hmm. so that was a big motivator and then in on a national level at that young age did you do like uh, national championships or that kind of thing or yeah we raced a lot of we used to race a bit of everything and at the time with the club i was on the rocky mountain racers and we were a biathlon cross country mix, small team. Everyone kind of trained together. And so the biathletes would race tons of cross country throughout the winter, mm-hmm. classic included. It was just like part of, almost like part of our training and development plan. So we would do like the NORAMs, cross, some of the cross country NORAMs. We would, of course, go to like trials, go to world juniors, but then we'd come home and we would, yeah, we would do nationals. We would do cross country nationals if, the schedules worked out and I did one Canada winter games back in 2011. That was a lot of fun too. 
So we mm-hmm. tried to do as much racing basically as we could in the winter when I was like coming up through the develop, like in my development years with my club. And then when I joined the national team, once you're a senior, it kind of shifts. Now everything's, of course, at the senior level. So I wasn't on World Cup right away, but I'm just racing IBU Cups as mm-hmm. much as I can throughout the winter and then trying to kind of break through into the World Cup circuit. Mm-hmm. And so much less racing at home and much more racing abroad. Because would you say, because you said the the level was quite a lot higher when you went to Europe, would you, like, were, did you stand out on the national level quite early or... Like was it was it obvious you were talented in biathlon? Like a, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. I I think that like when I went to my first nationals as a senior boy is I, I can still remember is me and some of my teammates and you know we were pretty good out west. We were you know the top uh, senior boys in Alberta at the time. But when we raced nationals, we got stomped by the Quebec guys. <laughs> they absolutely wiped us. We couldn't keep up skiing. They were far better shooters. And it was kind of humbling, you know, because we were mm. feeling good uh, coming from Alberta in the West where, you know, you do Westerns and you're on mm-hmm. the podium every race or whatever. And so you're feeling kind of confident going to nationals. And yet you just get stomped on by the Quebec guys. And there's always been a bit of a rivalry there, right? So right. we, uh, that was like a motivating factor. It's like, okay, we need to step up our own game. And then the next year we were working with a new coach and he was my longtime club coach. And he was arguably the most instrumental in my development because I worked with him for so long and he made sure that we got all those racing opportunities and that we were kind of making all the right decisions for me and the team for our development. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in one year, we kind of saw it flip where me and my team, like RMR, we were kind of progressing and becoming much stronger as a club. And so suddenly those Quebec guys, now we're kind of equal to them. So, okay, that's that's good. We've kind of like pulled even. And it's kind of motivating to kind of keep battling them to get better and better. But then when you race internationally, you realize, okay, the competition back home, it's important, but it's so much higher in Europe. Now you go to right. World Juniors and you mm-hmm. have like Norway, Russia, Sweden, Germany, all the big countries, France, and they just they just crush you. You go there and you just get crushed. <laughs> You're like, okay. So first it was like the Quebec guys out east, and now it's the international boys farther east in Europe. So again, kind of motivating though, because now you have something to kind of work towards. Right. So, um and I mean I never really quite caught to like the top, top guys, but I would say that we had some good junior youth results over the four or five years that I was racing at the world junior championships. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely like some high, some high points there. And yeah, I think it's, I think I'll, probably every athlete from Canada when they race at a world youth juniors or even like junior IBU cup, IBU cup, whatever it is that they're in, they immediately realize that the level's, significantly higher mm-hmm. yeah. and it's not yeah. quite as easy as back home where you can kind of get by on your talent or just hard work and just happening to be better than most of your competition right right who was your coach by the way his name is john jakes okay he uh he's been coaching the paranordic team for the last i think four years three or four years and he's been or maybe more than that actually but anyway he's He's been coaching the uh, the Paranordic Biathlon program 
for the last little okay. while, but he was our club coach for a long time. And yeah, he, he did a lot of really good work with the team we had at the time. Cause I mean, most of us are Christian. And I were kind of the last few uh, RMR alumni from that generation still racing. A lot of guys have, and girls have all retired and moved on mm -hmm. over the years, but it was a, a pretty strong team at the time. It was awesome. Nice. Do you ever remember what happened to uh, the guys you were competing against from Quebec? I mean, not that, you know, just, just did they uh, compete at all? Uh, is there anybody that we yeah. would have known of or? Um... There's a few. Uh, so like Jean-Philippe Legalec was too mm -hmm. old for me at the time. Like we competed together as seniors, but in terms of development, I mean, he's, I think five or I think he's five years older. So we never crossed paths until I was a senior. Um, but there's a couple, uh, like the first one that comes to mind is a guy named Vincent Blay. He, he competed at the IBU cup level up until I think the Sochi games. Hmm. So he was, you know, early to mid twenties mm -hmm. kind of competing in biathlon. And there were some other guys we competed against, but kind of the same that we find all throw biathlon, which is guys get to high school or guys and girls finish high school. And then a lot of people just retire for whatever reason mm -hmm. they're, they don't want to do it anymore. They're not as passionate or they really want to go to school or they want to work like whatever. Mm -hmm. So not a lot of guys kept going through high school years, but there was like a core group that, you know, we were all very friendly with. So we would train with them in training camps throughout the summer and uh, compete with them at IBU Cup and World Juniors and stuff. Um, I guess that, that yeah. raises a good question for me. When you were at that level, so you, when you were in like the, the juniors level when you're in high school, how much time were you putting into biathlon at that point? Um, I mean, we were probably, I mean, it felt pretty full time, but I was yeah. happy to do it. And I've had to like pick a, like we, we would probably still do between 15, 18 hours of training a week mm -hmm. throughout like spring and fall. It's always a little less in the winter. So sure. yeah. it actually makes it a little easier. But yeah, we had like a fairly full-time training plan. And we tried to get out to Canmore and shoot. But well, we always shot Saturday, Sunday. And then we always tried to get another two, maybe three days in during the week. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it was it was a little bit of a balance. We actually went to... Uh, a bunch of us went to a school, a high school called the National Sports School. It still exists. And it's a school that caters to amateur Olympic sport athletes. Huh. And the whole goal of the, or the whole point of the school is like as a biathlete, I would go there and, oh, I have to go training today on a Wednesday. Okay, no problem. You can just go. The teachers can give you all your homework. It's all, it was all online, which at the time, you know, the whole online uploading files, you know, to D2L or to a cloud, like it was all really new. So yeah. it was, yeah. was kind of, they're kind of at the leading edge of that. And uh, the big one was also, if I'm going to a world juniors and I'm going to be gone for two weeks, that wasn't an issue. They just, I write exams when I get back, I do homework when I get back, I can submit homework while I'm on the road. Basically they were just a, it's a super accommodating school where the teachers work with the students to uh, make sure that they stay up to date with school and their, their homework mm -hmm. and that they're able to get it done and, but also be supportive of them pursuing sport, whether it's training or racing. So that was but a huge help. 
for me to be able to train as full time as I could and then still be able to manage school on the side. Right. Well, school wasn't on the side. School was still the priority <laughs> to manage yeah. school while I'm trying to train because there is especially in like grades 11, 12, we were spending a lot more mornings training out in Canmore and then coming to school for the afternoon and trying to just kind of get it all done within a few hours. And yeah, the teachers were all super uh, accommodating. They didn't really, as long as you tell them while you're, why you were gone, you could miss class and just catch up later. So again, that helped a lot. And same with training camps. If we had to go on a training camp to Lake Louise for a week, it was pretty easy to kind of do it even at the last minute. So all of that kind of stuff was very Is helpful. that the school you qualify for or do you do you just enter it when you want to or? Uh, you have to apply to get in. So it's right. a, I don't know how many students they have, but it's not much more than a 100 or 150 would be my guess. Okay. And it's pretty small. And so, yeah, there's an application process to get in. And... Um, yeah, it's semi-private and I would apply. And then I just heard back saying that I was in and it starts in, it, you can go as early as grade nine. So it's nine to 12. Okay. So wow. yeah, very helpful. It's nice. Yeah. Nice to have that so close by Absolutely. your, by your uh, place. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, growing up in Calgary, I happen to live close to the mountains, which makes it easy to go training at the Nordic center, right. which is one of the best facilities in the world, to be honest. Right. Yeah. So it's like you have that benefit and then, yeah, having the national sports school in Calgary where I already live. Well, that's another benefit. I don't have to move yeah. or whatever. So a lot of good things that kind of just happen. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome though. That's uh, I mean, at least it, it provides the environment to succeed. Right. And then of course, then it's up to how much work do you put in and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, exactly. It's pretty neat. So um, if we move on to some general questions, and these are more just basically what the first thing that pops into your head, uh, whatever comes <laughs> up, uh, just answer that. Yeah. Um, so the first one is, uh, if you were not doing biathlon, what sport would you be doing? So the answer I always give is, I think I would like to be a long track speed skater. Huh. Oh, okay. I don't know why. I'm not into like going off jumps. So any like the freestyle events or like ski jumping, that's like off the table. Uh, downhill skiing would be cool, but I, I don't know. I don't think I could handle the speed <laughs> of like having to go down the hill that fast. So yeah, I think speed skating mostly cause I, I've always had like big legs. So I kind of could fit in with the other speed skaters in the big mm -hmm. leg crew. And I don't know, it would kind of be fun. Did you, did you speed skate as a kid or? No, we, uh, oh. the closest we ever got is we would, you could buy these skates that would, you could, they could, you could mount a cross country ski binding on them. It was like a really small oh, little right. blade and yeah. you could skate around and we would go to the oval and just skate laps kind of for training mm -hmm. when we were younger, but that's not like real speed skating. You know, it was kind of like a step closer from just being in hockey skates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, this, there might be an obvious answer to this question, but uh, if you could uh, pick any nation to represent, is there anyone that, that pops uh, straight into your head? Other than Canada? Yeah, other than Canada. You can't pick Canada. That was the obvious one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I figured that'd be obvious. Um, well, I mean, it would be awesome to be on like the Norwegian team. Hmm. but 
would be a um, lot of competition too, though. That's, right? yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So I have to be like really good to make that team, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't I mean, know. I'm not saying honest. you can't pick Norway, but that's a good question. Um, no, I have some really good friends on the Swiss team. So oh. maybe I'd compete with them on the Swiss team. And okay. Switzerland's a really nice country. So right. that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. <clears throat> um, if you could combine any two sports, what do you think would come closest to biathlon? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I have to think about that. Oh, we can come back to it later. If, uh, yeah. We'll see yeah, that when it pops okay. into your head. And um, this last one is more of a question if the ibu stopped existing what job would you do um i think we kind of have an idea what direction you're going in there but uh... well yeah if, if i'm not racing i'm in school right. <laughs> and <laughs> after school hoping I'd i'm gonna try and get into med school i'm going to apply nice. so maybe be like a doctor cool and if not that I think physiotherapy or like just physiology in general, exercise physiology, something like that, something sport related, mm -hmm. you know, just from the other side. And Not preferably biathlon or any sport would do. Um, I mean, I'll always have like a soft spot for biathlon, but it doesn't have to be biathlon specific. I think it'd be okay. interesting to try something different. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I, Scott, I don't know if you know this, but I, I actually, I am a doctor. Um, okay. So, uh, do you have any field in medicine that you would, uh, you would love to be in? I mean, it sounds like sports med, but I don't know if there's anything else that, um, that you would look into. Honestly, I don't even know what I'd be interested in. No. And that's I mean, it, I think, right? Yeah. I think that's the no. way for, for most med students is you don't really figure it out until you get into it. It's like, you don't know, even with my current degree. Like I'm going to go into kinesiology, but I don't really know where I'll end up for sure or where mm -hmm. I want to go within the, within the degree. Cause you can kind of branch off a little bit within kinesiology. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm just registered for a standard first year course load. And then hoping after a year, I decide which kind of direction I want to go. If I want to go more exercise physiology side, more biomechanics mm -hmm. side, somewhere between But um, I, I think I know I don't want to be a surgeon. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know if that's for me. Yeah. Like, I think yeah. I... Are you a surgeon? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. No. I, no, not at all. I mean, I have nothing against it. I just don't know if that's... Like, I don't know if I have a steady enough hand, for example, to, like, be a surgeon. But I do find it really interesting. Um, I was actually talking to a, a physiotherapist that I was connected with through my cousin and he was talking, well, I'm going to hopefully shadow him at his clinic coming up to try and like, just get some general experience, <clears throat> see if I like it, all that good stuff. And he actually mentioned uh, physiatry. Is that how it, physiatry? I think that's what he called it. So it's like sports med, but you can do physiotherapy type stuff. So that kind of sounded interesting. If I got into med school to kind of try and go that route. Well, some good ideas for the future. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm trying to stay flexible. Yeah. It's still a long ways away. So 
Ah, cool. Okay, why don't we move on a little bit to uh, getting a sense for what life is like when you're, let's say you go to a World Cup event and, um, and then we mostly want to get an idea uh, what you do when you're not training and not racing. So yeah, hotel, travel, team outings, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty... During like race weeks, like in a, within a trimester, it's pretty standard. Usually Monday is a travel day. And then there's, we usually race at the earliest, I'd say Thursday. There's a lot of Friday, Saturday, Sunday races. So those first few days is like easy training at whatever. The IB always has a schedule. So there's men's training, women's training either. And there's like official training times, unofficial training times. They're usually in either late morning early, late afternoons. And that's, I mean, the training itself is only 90 minutes, two hours of our day. And so then there's a kind of a lot of time in between. So usually like kind of wake up. I don't set an alarm unless I know I have to be up early, but I'm usually up by between eight and nine anyway. So it's like, wake up, have some breakfast, go back to the room. You might sit around for 20, 30 minutes. And then I would always go for a jog, some kind of like early kind of activation, kind of warm up the body, get it moving type thing, just so you're not too sedentary all day. Right. And, you know, you do that, you might do some stretching, uh, usually try and do a little bit of dry firing maybe. And then you're kind of, hopefully it's close to lunch. So you might be sitting in the room, watching TV, working on something, then it's lunchtime. And then usually after that, it's like, okay, time to go to training, do your training, come back. And then, yeah, honestly, it's a lot of sitting around sometimes, Uh you know, you're kind of just, especially the last two years with COVID, you're not going out in the town, you're not hanging out at a cafe or going to the grocery store. So you're kind of just in your room with whoever your roommate is and, you know, you're watching TV, you're on your computer, you're just kind of counting down the hours the minutes until dinner <laughs> and then after dinner yeah you, there's like we would do group stuff so we might play games as a team like a card game or you know we have a board game with us right on the road or whatever uh i had a nintendo that i can bring with me it's like okay, small yeah. and portable so easy to like plug it in into a common area and the whole team can play mario kart or mario party whatever right. i have on it uh that kind of stuff and yeah kind of a lot of sitting around alone time huh. and uh it's not quite as glamorous as i think people might uh believe it to be because you know at least on social media all you see is like oh out on a ski and the nice beautiful mountains and there's snow everywhere and it's amazing and it's awesome but then when we're not out there yeah you're just kind of sitting sitting around trying to find ways to keep busy yeah because you probably don't have enough time to explore the area or whatever right because yeah, not really. We also don't have vehicles like the we have a couple of vans, but the coaches have them because they're at the oh, venue, okay. right? Or the techs drive it to the venue. Right. So you don't really have the freedom to just hop in the van and go somewhere. It, right. At least most of the time you don't. We 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 can make time for it, but that usually takes place on like Monday, I would say is always kind of the easy rest slash travel day. Right. Because right. you're done racing, so you take the day off and there's time to do that kind of stuff. Um, and and pre-COVID, did you 
like, do you mix with other nations or other athletes that you know, or? Yeah, we would a little bit. Uh, like we're pretty close to some of the people on the American team. Mm-hmm. So we would hang out with them. Uh, Anaïs Bescon of the French team, she was super close with our team. So she would always okay. be, especially pre-COVID, if we were in the same hotel or if we were at least close by, she'd come over, we'd play cards or a board game. Like she always wanted to kind of get together with the team. Oh, that's and, cool. uh Yeah. So that kind of stuff was nice. So yeah, COVID did kind of suck for that because it was just, you had to be so strict because you really didn't want to take any chances and get one person sick who could then infect potentially the whole team. And then you just miss right. a week or two more of racing. And we saw with a lot of athletes that just, they didn't always bounce back after getting sick. So we just right. had to be right. like, we were so careful for two years that it was really too bad. You definitely felt more isolated than normal being on the road. Yeah. That must've been pretty stressful times. Mm-hmm. Especially when you see a, I don't know, like a staff from the hotel walking around without a mask or something like that. And cause it yeah, basically just, can ruin your season. Right. Yeah. And I have to say more like the IBU was really good about one, making sure that everyone fully understood what the COVID protocols were help making sure that everyone was following them. But even the hotels we stayed at just making sure that the hotels were also on board with the protocols that the IBU had. Right. Right. And we, we saw it the most, like at the end of this season, I like for sure, most people just stopped caring. It's like, Hey, we got through the Olympics. It's over. That was like the big event, you know, it's like, Hey, we're at the last world cup in Norway. People definitely aren't as, kind of strict when it came to their own COVID protocols. So, and Norway didn't have any masking rules anymore, but the hotel staff would still wear them if they were interacting with the teams. Okay. They're pretty good about doing that kind of stuff. You definitely had a sense that as long as the protocols are being followed, there's like a relatively high level of safety and low risk in terms of contracting COVID. So, but yeah, definitely isolating my opinion a little annoying but it was for the best right and but when you're not in a race tour like within a trimester we wouldn't go home so and that's where you have a lot more freedom so people kind of had the freedom to go like over christmas for example you're free to kind of go wherever you want within reason you know most people go we would always go to Obertiliac in austria awesome okay. little town great skiing and it has a range and everything but some people would go to italy some people would go to switzerland uh you were like allowed to spread out and that's when you would have more freedom to oh i want to go downhill skiing for a day well that's not you can just you can rent some gear you can borrow a van you can go do that so it's the in-between uh race tours where that's where you kind of do all the fun activities you'd like to try and get done while you're in Europe. So it's like a three weeks of being pretty strict, kind of sticking to the race plan. And then in between, you know, you can't quite go nuts, but you definitely can do a lot more. Yeah. So basically in between trimesters of racing, there's a relatively higher amount of freedom. Again, not as much as quote unquote normal during COVID, but you still had more opportunities to do fun stuff other than sitting in your hotel room all day and going training. So those are actually like the better times on the road. 
because that's also when people can come visit. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easier at least. Like this last winter, my mom, grandmother, and my youngest brother, they came to visit over Christmas. So they spectated in France and then stayed over Christmas in Overtiliac mm-hmm. with us. And that's like obviously a lot of fun and you get to spend time with family and then you get to just like do fun activities and work it in with the training plan uh, while you're in Europe. Um, and, and so you mentioned uh, Obertila a couple of times. Is that sort of the Canadian base in Europe? It has been for the last four or five years. I mean, I, okay, I first went to Obertiliac back in 2010. And, you know, they've always had an IBU cup in Obertiliac. I think there's always an IBU cup there. It's just an awesome facility. It's a really small town. Like they, they couldn't host a World Cup. It's just not big enough. And there's not enough. There's nowhere to put the spectators, but for training, awesome. They get tons of snow, all natural. Um, it's well-groomed, really good network of trails, very similar uh, kind of environment and climate to Canmore where you're in the mountains. The altitude is around 1400 meters, very similar to here in Canmore, uh, same kind of temperatures. So it's kind of, it kind of became the home away from home uh, for the team. So mm-hmm. I've spent the last, I think three or four Christmases in Obertiliac and not as much this year, but the year before we like, we would spend Christmas over Tiliac race and then go back to over Tiliac to prep for world champs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. We were kind of always going back to over Tiliac. And this year we spent a little more time in Antolts, which is only a about 40 minute drive from over Tiliac. So it's all kind of in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, nice central base to be in for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do would you even stay at the same hotel and like get to know the, the staff there and that kind of thing? Yeah, like, we were always yeah. in the same place. Really, nice. really nice family, and they're they're super accommodating. They're always so nice and friendly with our team, and yeah, we've gone to know them really well. So they're like super awesome to stay with, and they they and they have a beautiful hotel, so that's always a bonus too. Right. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, did you have anything else? Or sorry, not Scott, Jordan, uh, yeah. to ask Scott, <laughs> or do you want to move on to some uh, questions about the life of a biathlete? Um, yeah, let's let's move on. Okay, I'll take the first one. So yeah. let's assume that there's a major <clears throat> snowstorm just outside of the uh, IBU event location that uh, basically prevents you from leaving that area for a week. but surprisingly it doesn't affect the area itself and you are able to enjoy the uh, the place while you're there <laughs> what event location would that be mm. is it like a world cup venue yeah uh i would pick hmm my gut is oslo because oslo, yeah. they have like we hadn't been in oslo in a while like we finally went back mm-hmm. this at the end of march this year and the, na- the the natural trails they have that you can go out on just outside the venue are so nice. <laughs> it was like such a treat to be able to ski out there again. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. So that'd be a good one. And how about at the IBU level? Or or mm-hmm. junior? Or... Yeah. Anyone that sticks out? Or... Ooh, 
honestly, probably over Tiliac. We were just talking about it, but I really right. do love being over Tiliac. So if I was snowed in, that'd be a good place to be snowed into. <laughs> this is sort of a tangentially related question, um, but do you have a favorite track uh, for either the IBU Cup or the World Cup level? Uh, uh, yeah. Courses? Uh, I actually have grown to like Osterson's ski trails. Huh. Despite... I find them quite challenging mm. and they're known for being like a difficult track, but I've had some really good results there over the years. So I think it, for whatever reason, it like jives with me a little bit. So I've enjoyed it there. And, you know, they usually tend to have pretty good skiing conditions too. So mm -hmm. that's always a bonus. I also really like Antolz's ski trails. Mm. And that's, I, I don't know. Antolz is quite beautiful. And I think, mostly what I like is it has that home feel. So it's mm -hmm. like you're in the mountains and when you're out racing and skiing, you're just like out in the woods, much like in Canmore or like Kananaskis. And uh, it's cold. It's kind of dry, really good snow. It's always mm -hmm. well-groomed and packed. So it just like, it basically feels like Canmore. It's like the Italian version <laughs> of Canmore almost. Yeah. So I feel like I, you said, Feels like home. Yeah. Anything that feels like home is awesome. So <laughs> I, always, I always like racing in Antolz as well. Um, and then and then conversely, is there a, a somewhere where you'd say, you know, if I never have to race there again or never have to, to ski there again, you know, it's too soon. Right. Uh, so I think the go-to for most people is probably like Oberhof. Yeah. Which is a, like only because of the weather. Mm -hmm. It's not like a bad place. It's not... You know, it's actually a nice town. There's lots to do. It's not like you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, but yeah, every time we're there, it's almost always just raining and slushy and just so hard <laughs> to ski. And yeah. the course there's quite hard. So when the snow conditions aren't great, that makes it like that much harder. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's always a tough one. But I've been there a couple of times when the conditions are quite good. And I actually really enjoyed myself. So yeah, Oberhof in bad weather happy never to go <laughs> fair yeah um one thing that a lot of people always uh mention is the the uh biathlon family atmosphere that uh, seems very typical for for biathlon so do you know why the biathlon family is so unique and do they do they when you join the world cup do they make you sign a petition that you that you will uh <laughs> always be kind and respectful to the others or like how does that is it just yeah no no i think it just seems it's kind of like a cultural thing and i don't know obviously this started probably before i was even competing on the world cup but it's something that when you get there you're just you kind of just feel that welcoming atmosphere and everyone like most athletes and teams just are they're all on the same page it's just like we're all we're all competing for the same thing we're all in the same sport there's a mutual respect among mm -hmm. everyone. And yeah, it's kind of like an unspoken thing, but it definitely exists. And so you can, I would say even, you know, I don't talk to every athlete or didn't, you know, get to know them, but you do be out skiing and you just start chatting with whomever, right? you know, mm -hmm. or people start chatting with you. And it's like, I don't even know you knew that I exist kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, like it's after a race, you're cooling down and, you know, the first time I think I ever spoke to like Lucas Hoffer or Eric Lesser, it was just after a race. 
and they came over and just started chatting with me. And it's like, you want to talk to me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a surprise, but you know, they're super friendly and you're just chatting about the race, chatting about whatever cool. life. And yeah, it just seems to happen like very naturally. Now, granted, there's always a small language barrier, especially between like East versus West. So mm-hmm. like Eastern Europeans, right. they all, most of them speak English and a lot of them very well, but they're still that kind of like small language barrier or like an assumed language barrier at least. So right. I don't know a lot of those athletes quite as well compared to like, let's say the Germans or the, the Swiss team who mm-hmm. uh, we got quite close to, but uh, yeah, no, the Bath family, it, it is a thing. I would say like when, when you read about it or when people talk about it, it's 100% real. And has it, do you feel it has changed during your career on the world cup or? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think, I think it's kind of stayed the same. I think like the support and just the general <clears throat> camaraderie has always been there. And I think a really good example was this fall when, uh, like the unfortunate situation happening with Ukraine right now, but like it was kind of without saying anything, everyone was just on board in supporting Ukraine. Right. Right. right? Like every team, all the athletes, you didn't need like some email from the IBU telling people to show support or whatever. It just happened mm-hmm. just so naturally. So that's like a, I think a really good example of how the Bachman family just like, it just is part of the culture between all the different countries. Scott, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, that we didn't prep for, um, and and feel free to either not answer it. I can edit it out. But do you have any contact with any of the Ukrainian athletes or the the even the, like the Russians or Belarusians at all? Like I don't. Um, n- one, I don't really know any of them very well. Okay. So it's not like I'm really close to one of them, and we've maintained contact or anything like that. Uh, I know that social media is blocked in Russia at mm. least. So mm-hmm. I'm sure with a VPN, there's ways around it. I don't know how successful, like sure. I don't know how well yeah. the VPNs are working. Yeah. So hard, hard to say. I would say that I haven't seen any social media postings from a lot of Russian athletes or yeah. Belarusians. And I, again, I don't know if that's because it's blocked or because they're, they're just kind of on laying low. Sure. Um, yeah, I know that for some of the Ukrainian athletes, like it is possible to contact them and like help them own stuff. Um, but there's, yeah, as far as I know, I think it's possible. I think it's working, but I don't know any of them well enough to just like reach out and ask how they're doing. So I just try yeah. to show support like in different ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we noticed it, like you said, like as soon as, you know, it all started, you know, really, you could just see how everybody uh, came and sort of rallied around the, the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was just very neat. Absolutely. Um, on, a, on a lighter note, uh, something I was just thinking of, uh, what you mentioned, uh, Eric Leiser and Lucas Hofer coming up to you, but uh, what athlete or athletes, you know, kind of would be the, the guys or, or the women uh, that we think would be the most fun to get a beer with or get a meal with. And these can oh, be yeah. people that you, that you already have done that with, or just, just anybody. Well, I'm really good friends with Benjamin Wager and he's a lot of fun to drink with. So that's, <laughs> that's one that I can tell you that I know yeah. that's fun to have a drink with. Um, I actually like Lester's kind of a funny guy. Cause he's 
so blunt and so direct <laughs> and he has like a funny sense of humor mm-hmm. and I think he's hilarious. Uh, but yeah, he can come off. Like, I think if you didn't know him maybe, or you weren't maybe used to a sense of humor, he would seem almost like he's too direct, mm-hmm. too harsh. But I think when you know him, it's just, that's just, it is who he is. And I think he's hilarious. So I'm sure he's a lot of fun. Um, the Bull brothers always seem like they're like easygoing, chill guys. So they might be good to, you know, hang out with. Um, and then for the women, I mean, Doro's like a pretty big character. So she's probably huh. like fun to be around. Mm-hmm. You know, she's also, she's always like, always seems very positive and just like easygoing, you know, knows how to like relax. She doesn't have to be serious 100% of the time. Right. <laughs> you know, cause some, some people are like yeah. that where the biathlon's literally their life and you never stop thinking or, or focusing on biathlon. So. Hmm. Uh, it's funny with, uh, with the, yeah. uh, well, we always refer to him as Benny Beard, uh, but Benny Wager and uh, <laughs> yeah. and Eric Lesser would definitely be some of our favorites that we regularly Absolutely. talk about in our podcast. So, uh-huh. oh yeah, well, cool to hear that. I'm not. I can I'm ask not... Benji. I'm sure he'd be happy to come on if you ever guys ever wanted. You oh, can get that'd the be Swiss awesome. Perspective. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That'd be awesome. Um, if you could add a special bib to the World Cup races, what color would it be and what would it represent? Hmm. I like that the IBU added the U25. I think we were kind of... XC's been doing it forever and we were missing that because that's kind of the one I was thinking of. Um, I can add another one. I think... Um, there are juniors racing on World Cup. I think mm-hmm. it'd be cool to have like a either there's not that many, so maybe a different colored bib anytime there's a junior racing to highlight oh, nice. that they're a junior aged athlete. Yeah. Right. Or uh, a bib just for the highest, like the overall leader who's a junior. So like a U25 bib, but then a junior mm-hmm. bib, cool. I think would be kind of neat just to like, like highlight. Like those really young athletes, um, and so that they stand out when they're racing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's I like the idea about. Oh, sorry, I always yeah. think black would be kind of cool, but that's probably not great for TV. So, um, <laughs> oh, you know what? Green, because they're new. A green bib. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go, man. Yeah, no, I like the idea of uh, marking the uh, the juniors so you can tell you know when yeah. they're when they're on the course. And there's not, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's very many of them usually. You know, there's mm-hmm. always a couple from whichever countries. So, yeah, you can just give all of them a green bib if possible. And then it's like, because at the very last World Cup of the year, I think it's a yellow bib for the, like the top or the world, top world junior athlete or however they do it, who competes. And yeah, to me, they just stand out. And I like that. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, cool. Okay, there's like the top world junior athlete out on course. And it would and add value to the spectator too, right? Because it gives mm-hmm. you an idea of, you know, how good these I guys already so. are. Kinda, like they don't even have to be 
like amazing. You know, it's just right. cool to just highlight that mm-hmm. you know, there's juniors good enough to compete at the World Cup level who do well mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And yeah, for like a spectator, either on TV, especially in the crowd, just be like, oh yeah, nice. There's like, there's the world's like top junior or one mm-hmm. of the top juniors. Mm-hmm. Like it's just kind of, you, otherwise you would never know. True. Yeah. That's yeah, I think that's, that's a great idea. Um, this this is a this is a tricky one. So imagine you are in one of these sci-fi movies here, like in a a, a body uh, switch movie. So uh, if you could trade places with somebody, it could be any other athlete in the field, for one day, for one race, for one weekend, uh, who would it be? Oh, probably Johannes Bo. I need to know what it's like to ski that fast. <laughs> I just gotta know, you know. I think probably him. Yeah. Or yeah. like, or or like a Martin Fourcade, like one of those two, mm-hmm. just right. to feel it for a day. Uh, related to that, what? So when you mentioned earlier, uh, this is a ways back, but when you when you first had your first international races and just being sort of blown away by the. Uh, the the speed of the other nations what do they do is it just getting started younger what do you think they do that that has them being so much faster not just at a younger age but all the way through so i think it's i think there's two things going on i think one for a lot of those countries at least they just have a bigger uh, talent pool to take Mm -hmm. to choose from so i kind of liken it to canada and hockey every kid plays hockey Mm -hmm. so naturally when hockey is everyone's favorite sport in Canada, you're going to get a Sidney Crosby or like a Wayne Gretzky. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think for countries like Norway, for example, there's so many kids doing it that Johannes and like the Bow brothers, they're going to stand out. Ole Svensson, like all of these mm-hmm. great athletes, they stand out Russia too. They have a huge talent pool. So like their top athletes, they can rise to the top. France, France is interesting because I feel like they don't have a massive talent pool, but then I think they're really good at kind of young kids who show a lot of potential and they're really good at developing it. So that's like their strength. So that would be the other half, which is, you know, don't be afraid to take a 15 or 16 year old and just help push them. Like if you're the coach, don't be afraid to try and push them to just be the best and to be on like a really solid training program where it's like, yeah, we're going to try and make you just the best. Mm-hmm. We're not worrying about maybe you, you want to do other sports. Like you can, of course, but like if you're doing biathlon, I'm treating it like you're the future overall world cup champion. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's another element that some of these countries have. Combined with a good budget. Combined uh, yeah, with money yeah. and resources. That's always, yeah. that's, that's the third one actually, because I think it's like well known that just having a budget where you one don't have to pay fees, but also you have the opportunity to go on good training camps, have like uh, proper racing opportunities. Like those make a huge difference as well. So mm-hmm. those three things. Granted, I think the second one there is a little bit of a double-edged sword where you also risk burnout. And that's right. the thing. That's the part I wouldn't know. Cause you're always, it's easy, easy to look at the guys who made it mm-hmm. and who become the best. It's hard to know how many kids got burnt out or like left behind. Cause that system didn't work very well for them. Mm-hmm. Right. 
but I think if you just want to look at the top, like what made Martin Forcat so great, he was just super talented guy, obviously, amazing work ethic, super mentally tough, but like how much of that is fostered through his training and coaching or, or how much of that was purely him? Hard to say. Right. right. Um, we talked a little bit about this already, but uh, how would you say nations relate to each other on the tour? Like, do you just, you know, have personal clicks with people or do small nations hang out together more? Are the large nations harder to break into because they have more media attention, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think one, the one, the biggest one that draws people together is language. So us okay. in America, easy, mm -hmm. right? English first language. That's an easy one. I think the Central European, like, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, German, easy. And mm -hmm. similar cultures too, right? right? Culturally, they're fairly similar. Even like the Northern, like Italy, because they're all Northern Italian. They all speak German. They kind of fit in with that group too. And then uh, Eastern Bloc. So all the Russians, all those, and some of the smaller Baltics or whatever, they seem to all kind of hang out. So you kind of do see those clicks a little bit. The big countries, though, like Norway is very, Norway just hangs out with Norway. Okay. And they seem a little standoffish. I don't think they are. It just seems that way. And I think you see it that way because like, oh, my God, it's Norway, right? They're like, mm -hmm. they are, they're the cool kids. They're the jocks in the room. But mm -hmm. they're, they're all super friendly. Like, have you ever chatted with some of them? They're all super friendly. They're all chatty. They don't just like tell you to F off or anything like that. So, mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that, yeah, language is typically the biggest one. And then, but then, you know, someone like Anais, she becomes really good friends with most of us on the Canadian team. And she kind of took that step because she wanted to, she wanted to, she wanted to come to Canada. She wanted to learn to speak English better and huh. all that stuff. So she made that effort to connect with our team. And it started through the girls with, I think, like Rosanna and Zena at the time. But then she's right. become very close with all of us on the team. And then she's come to Canada several times. She's dating one of our, our wax techs, too. So she's like half Canadian <laughs> at this point, almost. Right, you know? right. We're like, we're very close with her. And then we actually got close with the Swiss team because Benji and the guys at the time, they wanted to go on a training camp to Canada because they thought that'd be fun. And so that's how we got to know them. They came mm. to Canmore, we trained with them, and we became friends. And nice. so yeah. it just connects that way too sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then I would say when you race against, like once you start racing more and more head-to-head -head with certain guys, like in relays, for example. So you got the finish area and the second leg of a relay. And let's say you're always the second guy. You're always the first guy. You just get to know those guys. Mm -hmm. so right, right. after the race and you kind of get to know guys that way mm -hmm. whereas you know in an individual or a sprint individual start you kind of finish you talk to whoever happens to be in the finish area and then yeah. that's kind of it right mm -hmm. but in a mass start like at the olympics for example it was so cold everyone's done within a short amount of time relatively short everyone's mm -hmm. in the change room talking about how unbelievably cold they are <laughs> so everyone's just kind of like bonding over the fact that thank god that's over because that was horrible in terms of just like how frozen yeah. everyone. Yeah. Right? So you kind of get to know guys that way too. Right, right. And then once you talk to them a bit, then it's like, oh, you see them on the course, you say hi, you chat, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Kind of goes from there. 
Cool. Um, so uh, if there's going to be a party, so if there's going to be a, like we know that there was at the end of uh, at the end of Oslo, but if there's going to be a party, who, what country is going to be the one that that starts it? What team is going to be the one that uh, gets it going? Hmm. My gut's telling me Norway. Yeah. It's just like as serious and like buttoned up as they can be. They definitely like when they let loose, they're letting loose. You know, like when it's party time, it's party time. So I'd say they're pretty much they're up there a lot. They're always like fun to be around when it's time to party. But honestly, most teams are like that. Yeah. Especially at the end of the year, no one's like no one's been doing anything. So it's like what yeah, a perfect absolutely. opportunity to just like go crazy for an, an evening. Oh sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it was a it sounds like it was a good time. <laughs> yeah, well, it to- was and, you know, I, I don't know how none of us got COVID from the COVID party, but you know, you had it just before so right? many people on social media is like, oh, tested positive. It's like the entire Norwegian team basically. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then like a bunch of people on the Swedish team. And mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of a lot of others on I know the Americans, same thing. A lot of them got COVID from that party. And I was just waiting. Like I was doing rapid tests <laughs> at home. I like, bet uh, it's probably any one of these is gonna be positive. Never did. But so, you guys had it like three weeks prior, right? So we did well technically we didn't or at least we don't think so because we had a positive test and a, a ton of people did like a bunch of us on the team and a bunch of other teams did and a little bit of a surprise because literally none of us had symptoms which huh. isn't impossible with covid but it just seemed like what are the odds no one knew they were feeling yeah. sick right yeah. and we did another pcr test the next day and everyone's came back negative Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So there's some kind of mistake at the lab, um, yeah. is our guess. So, cause like, I know Vitozzi always stands out cause she had a positive and she also didn't compete in Finland. Right. And, you know, we were all doing our isolation in the hotel and then we just came down to breakfast after our negative test and she was there too. So it's like her and her team yeah. was negative that, and a lot of texts from, I think Germany, were positive quote unquote but then same thing the next day they're negative so something was going on in finland unfortunately hmm. and um i listened to the uh doppelt seamer podcast from uh, from eric lesser and arn pfeiffer and they were alluding to that uh they were kind of the partiers as well um <laughs> okay. and they were actually funnily referring to um tom revolt she's on the uh athletes committee now yeah and they were kind of joking about her that you know she's fun to be around but usually she goes to bed at nine o'clock but okay. do you re- do you remember lesser and and pifer being partiers or uh okay not pfeiffer as much even lesser i don't know because like it's hard to say because you see people at like the final party at the end of the season and everyone mm-hmm. is partying right but i don't like to me, I don't see Arnd or Eric like tearing up the dance floor, for example. <laughs> right. Whereas you will see like Terrell, for example, she she's loves to dance. So she's out there like the whole time. Right. It's like there's that different type of partying. So those guys probably are like yeah. super fun to like sit around and have drinks with and go to a party, whatever. But I don't like I don't know. I can't like picture them. Just like out on the dance floor, yeah, 
just like okay. for hours or whatever. Hey, like, there's that. some teams where it's like, that's what they're there to do. They're there to dance like the whole time. Right. <laughs> so I can't say I'm yeah. shocked to hear that Tyrell likes to party, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she's like, yeah, that's you were asking like earlier, who do you want to have a drink? But that's another one. Like yeah. Doro and Tyrell, like they're just like fun people to be around. Yeah. You know? Okay. Uh, last questions in this section and you kind of alluded to it already, but uh, the toughest parts of being a biathlon, uh, biathlete on a world cup tour and the most fun part. Yeah. The toughest. Okay. Especially for us on the Canadian team, because we don't go home at least for the most part. So right. really, really long stretch of time, like sometimes three and a half, four months. That's probably the hardest part is just like, you don't go home. So you're just living out of your suitcase, going hotel to hotel. And yeah, that's pretty tough. And especially because talking earlier there's a lot of sitting around which also Mm -hmm. makes it difficult like when you're at home at least you can like do stuff like be that's part of your routine you know it's just going out to get groceries or i don't know fill up a car with gas go to a cafe get a coffee whatever right Mm -hmm. you don't do that on the road so you're kind of just missing any of that kind of normalcy uh best part though is you get to go to a lot of awesome places and you get to go to some awesome ski venues and ski trails. And of course the racing is, is why we're there. So not every race is an awesome race, but there's enough good races in a year that it makes it a lot of fun. Cool. Um, we want to jump over to, you probably know that I have the, the biathlon analytics website. So I do a lot, oh, yeah. a lot of uh, statistical analysis. Um, so a couple of questions about that. Uh, first is, do you use data or analytics to track performance, that kind of thing at all? Or does your team generally? Or I've been doing a little less the last few years. I got really into it uh, like four or five years ago. And the team does use some stuff. They use a bunch of different metrics to try and just kind of gauge ski performance, overall performance, shooting performance, stuff like that. And they have to present all sorts of um, stats to OTP every year as kind of like proof that we're improving and proof that we're doing the right thing <laughs> through stats and numbers. But I, I've always liked looking at competition analysis and trying to look at like ranks and my ski times, like my ski percents and all that other stuff. Like I think it's all super interesting and not just for myself, but just to see, Oh, like, how is the World Cup as a whole? How do they perform? What's right. the average? How do the top people perform? You know, the men. Right. What's the difference between the men, the women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of the biggest project I tried to do, well, project. One of the cur- one of the curiosities I had was how could we compare World Cup to IBU Cup more effectively? Mm. Like if I have, if Canada has athletes on World Cup or IBU Cup, and it's like, oh, well, do we switch these athletes? How would this athlete perform here or there? Like, is there a way you could try and do that? And yeah, I kind of had a lot of fun tracking people who raced on both of those circuits and just looking at their performance as a percentage and just seeing what the difference is between the circuits. And Matthias actually, like our old coach, Matthias Ahrens, he, he worked with some statisticians and they came out with like a proper study that found over a, I think a four-year period 
looking at athletes who raced at the Ivy Cup and World Cup circuit within the same year. And I think it, they had to have a minimum 60th place or better on the IBU Cup to be included. So it couldn't okay. be like too low down. Yeah. And yeah, they found that the performance difference is around, I think, four or 5% between mm. circuits on okay. average for men and women. So, and yeah, I just thought that was interesting because once we kind of got that, that number, it was kind of fun looking at, oh, you know, Canada, we're sending you know, our IBU team to Oberhof or to wherever uh, to race. It's like, oh, well, where do we think they'll end up? It's like, oh, well, you know, here's how they do on the IBU Cup. Add or take away whatever, 4%. And it was pretty <laughs> accurate. You could kind of like just, you can kind of just like get a really, really good ballpark of where athletes could end up. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff I always thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do a little less of it now, but mostly because I can just look at your website. You kind of have all those <laughs> tables and stuff. And I can just walk <laughs> through and it's like, oh, I don't have to do, I don't have to suffer through like Microsoft Excel or whatever. <laughs> I can just like click buttons and get all the data right there. So you've made it easy. Oh, good to hear that. It's so, a, a good, good advertising yeah. for biathlonanalytics.com. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. You can find all their posts on their Instagram page. Yep. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So uh, I, I guess uh, you sort of answered the question there, but did you find uh, the the analyzing the data like that? Did you find it helpful for you as an athlete? Yeah, it gives you a really good. Uh, well, it gives you like knowledge, but really good perspective on like my own performance and where I fit in. Because mm-hmm. I do find a lot of like like so many athletes don't really look at that kind of stuff. Like they kind of like casually will uh, like glance at an analysis and just kind of like, oh, okay, that's where I skied or like that's where I ranked or whatever. And it's like, well, okay, but aren't you a little more curious? You know, like in my mind, it's like I need to know exactly how like each lap was. I need to know how quickly I shot because then it's like, well, I want to do either better or I want to know, you know, where we fit in compared to other athletes, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like other teams and it's like, where do we have advantages? Where are we at a disadvantage? That kind of stuff. So yeah, it's really good. And for a perspective though, cause I also find that there's so many times, sometimes people look only at the time behind. So it's like, Oh my God, I skied a minute slower on my first lap. That's horrible. So again, mm-hmm. but the rank was really good. Maybe it's like, Johannes Bo just like crushed everyone on lap one. Everyone <laughs> looks bad on lap one and yeah. it's his fault, but like your actual skin <laughs> wasn't like that bad. It's like, it's, a, it's good to be able to understand that kind of stuff. Right. Sometimes you get caught up in just the time behind. Cause then there's mm-hmm. also times where uh, I think France was one and Estonia, like fast courses. So your time behind skiing, it's like, Oh man, that's one of my best times behind. And then you look at the rank, you're like, Oh crap. it's like you kind of you were feeling good yeah yeah yeah. so just like do you know of oh sorry go ahead no no go ahead oh i was just wondering like do you know if if teams like norway or just bigger teams if they actually have like analytics teams or staff and does the ibu provide any data to the teams or i'm sure so the ibu does provide data to the teams like Baja canada gets cb data and the IBU is like giving it to them. 
okay. through CBD mm-hmm. or whoever. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's not it's not supposed to be shared. So it, it's right. Kabasa Canada for for us to use as an organization. And we actually, Bath and Canada uses, uh, it's not Canadian Tire, well, maybe it is, but Canadian Tire, as an Olympic sponsor, they provide like data analytics. Right. And so that's who the team uses oh, okay. through that sponsorship. And so they, they'll just email whomever and just say, oh, you know, we want to know this, 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 and this. And then they'll get back to them with all these numbers. And then that's what they use uh, internally, but also again, like when they're talking with OTP when it comes to like funding or right, team right. performance, progress, all that kind of good stuff. And I, I am sure Norway has like their own specialists, same with Germany, like the big teams, they have mm-hmm. people who they're statisticians, but statisticians who know biathlon. So they know mm-hmm. what to look for and they know right. what's relevant. Right. And so they can come up with all sorts of really, really good numbers. But my guess is, like for an organization, it's really good to have that stuff, but it, you have to apply it at kind of like, um, at like a higher level kind of across the team. Like you're kind mm-hmm. of looking at the team performance as a whole, let's say. You're not really hyper-focused on how well did Scott do and how right, do we right. improve Scott, right? It's more like, okay, well, how did Scott, Christian, Adam, Jules do in the Olympics, let's say, okay. Right. How do we do compared to these teams? What were we good at? What were we not? And then what can we do to improve like everyone skiing or what can we do to improve everyone shooting that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and then looking at me specifically is just interesting for me specifically, gotcha. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just to know like where I landed and where I fit in and kind of gives you a way to see like, okay, that's where I am. And then here's how I can maybe improve or here's how much I could improve that right. type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting phase because I, I used to do uh, hockey analytics as well. And, mm. and they they went through that phase as well where only the teams had some data and they did their own analysis, but it was all hush-hush. Mm-hmm. And then people started to, you know, write pieces about it and do their own statistical analysis. And I think in the beginning, there was a lot of fear in the NHL teams that, you know, the average Joe could show things about a team that they didn't want to get out. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was it was kind of interesting to see, and then it and then it became more of a, you know, there, there was a lot of new statistical or analytical ideas that came out that teams actually thought were really valuable. So then they embraced it more. The the idea of yeah. uh, openness and and uh, so my my hope is that the IBU eventually will just make the data available like they had I think up to about five years ago. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if we'll see it anytime soon. But yeah, it's so hard to know. And I don't know how much of that is the IBU versus Siwi data, like the the company that's providing right. the timing. Right. But uh, I I think the IBU, like if you've been on their data center, they have mm-hmm. the statistics page. It's literally just a shooting average. It doesn't right. even really explain how they're mm-hmm. counting it. I think it's just a simple sh- hits, misses of every mm-hmm. race, right? Mm-hmm. Including relays and stuff. But it would be so much cooler if they could just have some kind of table or like a tableau where okay what's my shooting what's an athlete shooting average overall what is it for each event Mm -hmm. right break it down by trimester even or whatever you know stuff like that and put skiing in there i like i don't know why it's only shooting but they could they could add so much stuff that yeah like pretty basic stuff the average joe could do if they either had access to the data or just were willing to sit down and like punch in the numbers themselves right Right. And then, yeah, you don't have to come up with all sorts of crazy metrics, 
but just like kind of the basics, like ski speed, uh, ski percent, maybe some averages. And how, then, how would you, uh, one of the questions that is coming up soon, but how would you analyze ski speed? Like what, what is a, a way to demonstrate ski speed that makes sense to a biathlete? Okay. So not a statistician, but I like stats. And yeah. I think for the longest time, like Bathon Canada, for example, they used to look at it as uh, your speed in meters per second, Okay. which, okay, that's like a literal speed, right? <laughs> but not super useful when you're trying to compare just different days, different conditions, different snow, different right. venue, right? Not super helpful. And even different events. Like I ski faster in a relay than I do an individual. Not because I'm slow at individuals. It's just, it's a longer, slower event. Right. So yeah. that's not necessarily a great way to measure speed. So to me, you measure everything as a percent. So I either give the, either average of the top three. So the winner has like 101 or just give a hundred to the winner and then work backwards. Right. And then you always know how you skied relative to the fastest guy. And actually in my mind, I think an even better way to like measure that would be more accurate for looking at your performance over a whole season is actually to a plus or minus of the mean. So like mm -hmm. almost like a Z score, um, which I think is kind of what the IBU does when they show those shooting uh, and uh, ski, like those little metrics they put on the start list, like when you're watching the broadcast, you know, it's like a plus minus, like a green or red bar. Yeah. And I've I, always I'm wondered sure, what it actually is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know for sure, but it, it looks like they're showing you how well that athlete skis or shoots compared to the average is my guess. Or like the median, maybe like the median skier. It's like one of those two. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that would be a cool way to show it too. Because also in the IBU handbook, when you look at ski, uh, ski um, performances, like your average for the year, it's also kind of like a plus minus from right. the average. So, yeah, and I think they started should be around zero, right? And then you know one end gets into the pluses up to like plus four or five, and then the the top athletes are always like minus five or sometimes mm -hmm, even right. minus six. Right. Yeah. I think they started to also do um, seconds behind per thousand meters to to basically even out the different distances in uh, in events and so. Yeah, and I think that's to me that's more for like the average viewer, right? To try and like understand mm -hmm. the time gap, right? You know, because uh, just giving someone like a percent of the average or median that doesn't really mean anything sometimes. You know, like it it does, but it's hard to kind of visualize it. Mm -hmm. So I think that stuff, it's like, oh yeah, they ski this many seconds behind Johannes over a kilometer. And yeah. sometimes it's kind of depressing knowing how big <laughs> that is. I lose that much in one in one, yeah. Yeah, it's like, one kilometer. Yeah. Like, oh man. And it's like, well I could probably ski that much faster, but then you can't. It's like, <laughs> no, I'm just that's what it is. It's yeah. stuck there. So uh, for, for us Dunderheads, uh, if you had to pick out like one or two stats, you'd say, you know what, after a race or after, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to, to understand, what, what would be the couple that you would, uh, you would look at right away? So if I'm looking at competition analysis, sure, yeah. I'm looking at course time, but also 
not just the time, but the rank. Like you really need to kind of, hmm. you need both of them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, shooting time. Hmm. Those are like the big ones. And shooting time, mostly because with our coach Pavel, we work so much on shooting speed. And, you know, I think overall we're pretty good at maintaining a decent accuracy, right? Mm-hmm. And so the speed is a big one. And the one mm-hmm. thing you notice it less in sprints, but it's in like a four shoot, like a pursuit race, we can shoot quickly enough that we almost make up a penalty loop in shooting speed. Mm. And that's like the one thing I've noticed race after race the last two years in particular, which is I'll race a pursuit and my shooting time will be fast enough that compared to, let's say, like a lot of the guys in front of me or around me, I basically, if I shot, let's say 18, I actually shot 19 because the shooting speed was high enough that it kind Mm -hmm. of negates the one miss I had. Mm -hmm. And that's like a huge advantage that we've had the last few years mm-hmm. where it's like that's helped a lot and we've almost always moved up in pursuits and i think it's i think that's a big reason why it's like mm-hmm. as long as you shoot well average or better we have that added advantage of shooting speed and that just helps keep us like in the mix mm-hmm. much longer so we don't drop down as much if we do have a bad shooting bout it's amazing how how well you guys do especially in that aspect like you're it seems like there's always canadians in the top 10 when it comes to shooting speed mm-hmm. yeah for the men so, and the women yeah mm-hmm. again yeah. that's like we i can honestly say we work on that like every day throughout the summer fall all the time it's right. always like we never shoot slowly in an effort to hit more the only time you wouldn't shoot quickly is like we're doing a precision test or we're doing like a very specific precision static drill right. that you know the emphasis is truly on just like a perfect hit then you maybe wouldn't be ripping off your shots but outside of that combo training static training normal combo intensity combo it's always trying to push the speed and then you kind of build up the confidence and the accuracy around the speed right right mm-hmm. do you ever get questions from other athletes or nations about that like is that something that you talk uh, about or yeah every now and then like people might comment they'll just observe that oh wow you got shot really fast it's like yeah yeah we did, <laughs> and the whole team did. <laughs> this is like this is the future of biathlon you just some people just i don't think have like fully understood that yet mm-hmm. you know because there's still like even when you're watching the top athletes a lot of the top athletes they shoot quickly but every now and then someone's on the shooting mat for like 35 seconds and to me it's like yep that was way too long Mm-hmm. Granted, they're good enough that they can still ski their way to a podium or to a medal and mm-hmm. or they have a lead, so it didn't really matter. But for those of us fighting among 20, 30 guys to move up in a pursuit or whatever, the shooting speed is a huge advantage for us. Right. right. So and I think we're seeing the World Cup trend that way. Like I without knowing the numbers, my gut is that it's getting faster. And it's tightening up. So more people are shooting closer to the 25, 30 second mark. Right. With with fewer people being like 35, 40, 45 seconds shooting times, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I looked but, into that. It's it is it is uh, generally yeah. creeping up. So like it's it's kind of yeah. yeah, it's getting like it's condensing. I think the mm-hmm. skiing is the same way where um 
the time gaps to like Johannes aren't changing a whole lot, but the number of guys who are now within a minute, minute and a half of Johannes in skiing ability, that number is growing. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's almost getting more competitive in the like 20th, 30th to like 50th ranks. Like mm -hmm. that's becoming very, very competitive space. And we see it a lot this year, for example, where one miss takes you from 30th to 50th or like lower. Right. It's like right. such a huge amount of people crammed into like a 30 second window. And that's something I've noticed a lot over the years where that's, it is just becoming so much more competitive and pursuit cutoff times are getting tighter and tighter too. Where yeah. like we're having some pursuits that are under two minutes now, you yeah. know, which mm -hmm. is, that doesn't leave a lot of room for error. Mm, right especially if you're an average skier you you better be hitting all your targets if you want to be in the mix because you're just not going to be otherwise and hit them fast too <laughs> and hit them fast yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly okay we have one more question um for the analytics part so um the situation that lisa fitatsu went through this season where where basically her shooting percentage in one type of shooting just dropped crazy do you think that's um purely mental or is is it related to that you may be skiing faster and and do you feel like that could be even analyzed or is it just strictly in the head like in my opinion it's got to be 100 mental mm -hmm. it just has to be i think we all know vitozzi is an amazing shooter mm -hmm. but she always has been until this year really right and even when you watch her shoot, her relays, that first prone in relays tends to be really, really good. So she doesn't seem to have a mental block there. But then it's like her pursuit in individuals where there's two prones, her first prone tends to be really bad, like every single time. And then she'll clean the next prone or whatever, right? right? And it's like, okay, what? it's just like it happens every race. So it can't, it can't be something... It's not like it's the wind, right. right? Or a misread of, yeah, the wind or, or the light conditions. And I, I can't imagine that it's a problem with her position and her setup. Or if it is, it's because that's like being derived from like the mental aspect. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the stress and anxiety is, yeah, the overthinking is causing her to maybe get into a tense position or to, you know, her elbows are set up in a weird spot, but she doesn't notice. Like, I don't know what, what it is exactly, but to me, it's gotta be like a, a massive mental block that she's hmm. like really struggling with okay. because yeah, it's like that one shooting and then the rest of them are fine, you right. know, and her standing seems to be unaffected. So it's like yeah. more of a prone problem than a standing problem. So yeah. it's not like she has no confidence with her shooting. She just doesn't have confidence with her prone shooting. Right. It's like I can, it's got to, honestly, it's got to be like a nightmare. It's mm -hmm. like race after race, and it just seems to go unresolved. It's well, like, oh, maybe today she'll shoot well. And then it's like, no, another four. <laughs> it's just like so heartbreaking. That's probably just that spiral. Then, then you start thinking about it more, and then mm -hmm. it goes even worse. And, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And you, what you need is like a hard reset. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where either you just don't race or you go in a race and you just truly just can't care. It's like, well, here comes another five misses and maybe you surprise yourself or something. Right. But yeah, it's man, this is like, she's like a really good example of how really, really difficult biathlon can be mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. when you 
because it must have something would have triggered it, right? Like something either in the summer or from the year prior. It's like you're a really good, really shooter, really good shooter, and you have one really bad shooting bout, and somehow it just like crushes your confidence. And it's just like you're in this hole that you just can't seem to climb out of. And then you're, you're, it's being reinforced with more and more bad races. And so right. it gets harder and harder to like break <laughs> back out of it. And I've seen it so many times, maybe not honestly quite as bad as Vitozzi's because hers is like so night and day from her mm-hmm. first shooting to the rest of her shootings. Right. Right. But I've seen it with other athletes where maybe not for a whole year or, whatever but like for a week or like a trimester it's like they just can't hit a target i think for trill might be a good example of mm-hmm. like oh, yeah, she yeah. will go such a long period of time where she just struggles to shoot and we know she can hit targets she knows she can hit targets but then all of a sudden it clicks she has like that one race where she's hitting and she's got her confidence back and then boom she like doesn't look back yeah you know and so i don't know that's like yeah and people are like oh yeah biathlon's like kind of hard it's like yeah but actually like it can be like the oh, hardest totally, part yeah. of shooting is staying consistent mm-hmm. and not picking up bad habits and stuff. Cause even with myself, every now and then you either get complacent or I, I can't even tell you what is always going on sometimes. But to me, for me, at least sometimes it's a complacency of like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm shooting well. It's fine. And then you pick up a bad habit somewhere and then you reinforce it. And now I'm not shooting well. And that's really hard to climb out of it. Cause now you're like, trying to think of like, okay, I'm going to change this, change that. When really you just got to like stay in the zone, right. you know, right. less is more type thing. Huh. When you see something like with, uh, what Lisa was going through, um, uh, do you guys talk about it like between yourselves, like amongst your team or at all, or is it just sort of one of those, it's almost like verboten. and you just don't say anything about it at all. Oh no, we, I'm sure everyone does too, but like everyone, it's like probably the same reaction most people have watching, which is like mm-hmm. we're watching whichever women's race. And yeah, they the TV will still show Lisa come in, which is great. But it's like, okay, here come like four or five misses. Yeah. This is like you're just waiting for it to happen. It's like you're waiting for the it's like watching a car accident, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you want you don't want to watch, but you can't look away. And as the race season goes on, it just like becomes more and more unbelievable that. It's just like, is literally, that's just the routine now. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, like you said, you, just, you feel bad for. Oh, 100%. It's got to just be like so brutal. Especially because she does reasonably well, considering yeah. having like a bunch of misses almost every yeah. race. So, yeah. Well, especially when you've been there yourself, you, you, you can relate to it, how frustrating it is. and Yeah. Well, and then just knowing like how good Lisa has always been mm-hmm. and then just seeing her struggle, like you just feel, you just feel for her. Right. Yeah. Uh. All right. Let's move on to the, uh, the final section of this, uh, this part. Um, so I don't know how much you are able or willing to say about this, but uh, coming from a smaller team like Canada, how does that work when it comes to financing and budgeting? You, you mentioned that you have to uh, apply probably on a yearly basis based on, on results and improvement, et cetera, mm-hmm. for, for budget. But uh, like, can you live off it? Um, yeah. So do- I can talk to, well, I can talk about how like team funding and then individual funding. So I'll start with the team. 
for a team to get funding, uh, I mean, our primary source of funding basically comes from the government. So every year, Biathlon Canada meets with On the Podium and Sport Canada. And they basically just have to like pitch the team, like how well we did the, the previous season, uh, what we're planning to do for the year, what we need money for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And On the Podium has like a pool of money that they divvy out to all the Olympic sports. And they kind of prioritize funding to teams with Olympic or world championship medals. So the more medals you have at a major like Olympic world champs uh, games, uh, the more funding you'll receive. And then there's other factors like how many people do the sport. So if you have thousands of kids doing in swimming or, or track and field or whatever, uh, usually there's like more money allocated for that sport, especially if they're successful versus biathlon where there's a much smaller pool of athletes, right. for example. Um, so medals, top threes are always, those are like the big metrics they look for that they do look at top eight results as well. So that's, I, I can't remember the terms they use, but, uh, a top eight for sport for on the podium basically indicates that you're on track for podiums. Right. And so you're trending in the right direction. And so that can increase funding as well, just not as mm-hmm. much as a medal would. And then I think they also like kind of look at top 16s, but that's more of a, you kind of basically one top 16 at a world champs, like won't get you anything. That's more, you have medals, you have top eights, and then, oh, we have all these top 16s. And then that might look good kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we do that every year, every year they allocate X number of funding. And it, it changed in recent years where it used to be the funding. You had to have those metal performances to get funding. And the funding was technically tied to the athlete or athletes who are getting those results. So in 2015, for example, Nathan had a silver medal at the world championships. They gave us a, I can't remember the number, but maybe a hundred thousand dollars, let's say $200,000 of funding that was tied to Nathan because he was the one getting the silver medal, but the, it's money for the team to use to support Nathan, to make sure he gets more medals. So that's kind of the approach they take. Mm-hmm. And then in recent years, they've opened it up a little bit. So now there's next gen funding. So there, and that's where we've been getting the majority of our funding is through this next gen funding. So we've been getting however much, and I don't know the number, but, and that's tied to, athletes who are identified as being medal winners potentially in like four or eight years. And so we kind of have these two different, uh, different pools of funding that we can receive as a sport organization. Hmm. Now the hope is that after this Olympics, we had, uh, I had a fifth in the individual. Mm -hmm. So that's one top eight. And then our relay is a sixth, which they count as Kind of, they kind of counted as four sixth places because there's four of us on the relay team. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they look at that as five top eight results, and therefore we will receive some f- targeted funding um, on top of the next gen funding. So it's like Christian Adam Jewell, who are still competing. It's like, well, these guys did really well at the Olympics, uh, not just in the relay, but even just as a whole, we did quite well mm-hmm. on the men's. So that's a worthwhile investment to like, see if we can get you guys into the medals. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how teams get funded. 
And then, you know, when we aren't getting super good results, the funding is pretty low. And so every year, the last few years, Bathon Canada, we have been in tight uh, kind of financial stress where we can kind of, the organization can run, we have our coaches, uh, we can afford to pay our staff, we can subsidize a huge chunk of the World Cup, but there have been fees associated with racing. And that's relatively new within the last few years because World Cup has always, at least historically for me, if you're on the World Cup, you're not paying to race for Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're racing at the World Cup and you're helping get funding for the team, like you're not paying to do that. Whereas mm -hmm. now we just don't, we haven't had the money to be able to afford to do that anymore. So there have been tour costs and we kind of, we tend to break it down by trimester, but you can break it down further by just like per week of racing. And luckily, you know, the way we've done it is like, Hey, well, worst case scenario, you're going to have to pay like 10, 15 grand for a whole world cup season, including world champs, the Olympics. But we've had, we raise money through donors. We raise money through a few sponsors and then, you know, the last couple of years, we don't end up paying that large sum. It's like a fraction of that. So it's like mm -hmm. maybe a thousand, two thousand dollars at the most. So that's like awesome, right? Like that's so we're able to raise money throughout the year, but we we didn't have that money until the end of the season, basically. So you're going into the year expecting to potentially have to pay. So that's kind of where Bathon Canada is at and where the where the like how the team is. Right. But again, hoping that after this last winter Olympics we had a lot of really good results. So hopefully that results in like some stable funding and an in and a significant increase uh, for the athletes individually. Our primary funding outside of sponsors comes from sport Canada. And that's what we call carding. It's carding is the athlete assistance program. And the way that works is sport Canada. Basically they look at Boston Canada and as, when they're meeting in the spring like right now they look at our team's results how many people are competing and doing well at the world cup olympic level how many people we just have in the sport in general and then they allocate funds to help support athletes directly and so i don't know the the sum is let's say the last few years has been around 200 grand and that gets broken down into what is either a senior card or a development card and Ooh. most athletes get senior cards which is, it's a kind of an odd number. It's like 22,000 something dollars over a year. Mm -hmm. And that's like our primary source of funding. And that is a, what they call living and training allowance. So that that's like paying for my rent. It's paying for groceries. It's paying for living expenses. And if I have leftovers, it helps pay for camps or like training equipment that I need throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say you could get by on just your carding but most athletes on the team they you would need other grants or sponsors to help supplement because mm -hmm. like the cost of living canmore is like relatively high and if you're paying to race on tours in the winter well that's going to eat up most of your carding especially if mm -hmm. like Boston canada for example gets zero funding so like for me in the past i've received that senior card and then alberta has a grant that uh, you can apply for to help supplement your carding. So you have to be carded to get it. And it's basically 
extra carding money is kind of the best way to look at it, but it's from Alberta itself. So each province kind of has their own grant process and they have mm -hmm. different grants available. So it kind of depends where you live. And then I've been lucky enough to have some really, really great and supportive sponsors who have helped pay for, like they've provided funding so that I can go on training camps and cover all my racing fees if I have any. Mm -hmm. So feel free to mention them if you, uh, if you want. Yeah, they, uh, one of them, the company has been bought and it's changed, but it, uh, the guy really good friends with, really close to, known him for a long time. His name's Christoph, and he's been so supportive of me and Christian and and Emma now too. And yeah, he's he's always supported us. So it, his company was giving us money, and he recently retired, but he still has like his own uh company like he's i guess kind of self-employed type thing and he supported us through that through that company and he's been really good it's called saguaro and and then there's just another gentleman in, in canmore who it's it's not even a sponsorship technically because he doesn't we he doesn't have any company uh uh name that we put on a race suit or anything he just donates money to us to support yeah. us so really nice of him and he's been a really good supporter and he just does it because he just wants to help us succeed. So it's like me, again, me, Christian, and a few other people on the team. So really, really, really nice. Yeah. And do you know if there's any, like, has the IBU ever talked about setting up a fund that is sort of uh, contributed to by nations based on their availability, I guess? Yeah. Where, because I mean, you know, the, the smaller nations are still needed for the bigger nations to to compete but yeah so yeah. i know so the ibu for like the really small nations the ibu does like give i don't know if they give much in terms of just straight cash but i know they give a lot of equipment and other sorts of support through like their partners uh to like really small countries so like uh let's say like south korea for example right or right. China at the time, like when, before China, you know, made their big push before the Olympics, mm -hmm. they would mm -hmm. get a lot of equipment and stuff to help with developing biathlon in their respective countries. And Canada used to get that kind of stuff too. And we still do get a little bit of support. Like, I think we get a bunch of ammunition, but I don't quote me, don't know that for sure. But okay. anyway, uh, but I know that Claire Egan, who is American woman on the uh, athlete committee. She mm -hmm. has told me how she's brought it up with the IBU. How we, actually Canada we pay more than any other country on the IBU uh -huh. to, to race in Europe. Like when we when we're going into the winter, knowing that okay, well this first you know three weeks is going to cost this much in the whole season. We're the only nation who knows that we may have to pay that much. Like every other country, if they pay, it's like a fraction of what we would end up paying. Mm -hmm. uh, if we didn't end up getting funding and donations and whatnot. So mm -hmm. she's brought that attention to the IBU and I, I don't know if it's gone anywhere, but she has kind of pitched to them that look, a country like Canada, like a lot of countries struggle with this. Mm -hmm. You could try and level the playing field a little bit and help them financially so that they're able to compete and able to keep up because yeah, it helps the sport as a whole when you have all these countries competing and not mm -hmm. having if they can like actually afford to do it. Right. Yeah. You don't want it to just be the top five nations competing, basically. Right. Yeah. And that's a lot yeah. more boring. So you want as many yeah. people in there as possible. 
to make it bigger. So, and I don't know how far that's gone, but I know the IBU does look into stuff like that. And okay. they're, they're making bigger pushes in recent years, like with the new um, administration and everything to kind of figure out ways to like improve the sport. Like a big one, for example, is like the environmental side, how to make things more environmentally friendly and more efficient and how can they make changes there? But then also they're looking at trying to make it truly more of an international sport. So like, let's break out of central Europe, Scandinavia and actually race in other places and how to make that work. And that involves a lot of subsidies because I know the big teams hate coming to North America, for example, because it's very expensive. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, yeah, well now you know how we feel. (laughs) (laughs) You're a much bigger team than us, but you know, we literally fly to Europe on a bare bones team because we have to. And we don't have the funding right. for more. So, mm-hmm. you know, join the club. Yeah. They, they do look into that kind of stuff. And so it'll be interesting to see, like, what ends up happening. Mm-hmm. So, actually, that, that brings up a, a good question. So, uh, as, you know, as the, as the years are going by, you know, if we look 10 years down the road, um, do you think that we'll still see the same general stratification with you know your norways and germany's and france's and sweden's on top or do you think that there are some other teams some other nations that are going to start rising up um you know what do you kind of think that uh, biathlon looks like 10 years down the road yeah i think it's going to go through waves so i think 10 years you're going to see i think we're going to see more variation again mm-hmm. in, in the podiums and and we're not going to have like the standalone superstars like we did with Martin and with Johannes and even like Terrell or Olsbu where they can just dominate like a whole season almost. I think those athletes will dominate for as long as they can. But I think what we're going to see is when those athletes kind of drop off or they retire, whatever, and it opens up to other people, I think you're going to see it kind of level out. And that's just my gut. But I think, you know, there's really good talents like from Austria, like, Lisa Hauser, you know, she's like always in the mix. She's kind of on the cusp. We're seeing Sweden make a comeback in the men mm-hmm. and women's where they're mm-hmm. like getting back towards the top back like in the 2000s when they had Anna Karin and, you know, Bjorn Ferry and those, those athletes. Mm-hmm. So like they're like Elvira, for example, like she's going to be a legit overall threat to all those women and to Norway mm-hmm. and with her sister and those other women, they're so good. Like, Sweden is going to start becoming, I think, a nation cup winner. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's one thing to look for. And, but I think, cause I, I think what will help us spread out is countries like France, they have good athletes at the lower levels, but I always worry that they don't do enough to support them. And when you have the same group of athletes racing world cup for like a really long period of time, I feel like the gap, the development gap and performance gap to whatever the current generation is tends to get bigger and bigger because mm-hmm. they never get the opportunity to move up. So they're kind of like athletes make it to have U cup. They stay there for a bit. They don't make it to world cup Olympics. So they either quit or they just literally never make it. And I think when there's not enough cycling of athletes within the top levels, it can get stale at the lower level. In my opinion, mm. so you always have to like look out for that. Um, what about Canada? Where will Canada be in 10 years? Do you, I think we're going to be in a pretty good spot. I think Canada's also 
like in that same way where there's not enough cycling, like we kind of had a problem where we had a strong World Cup team and I'm back to when like Nathan and Brendan were still competing. So back uh, Korea around that Olympics mm-hmm. and you know, it was like the same group of us. It was like me, Christian, Brendan, Nathan, and Max Davies for a long time at the World Cup national team level. And there's a lot of other guys with potential, but they never broke through. And then those guys retire. And then there's like, oh, now the next in line is Adam Runnels. But he's like 17, 18 at the time. <laughs> right. So there's like this huge age development gap that Adam has been able to close now. So now we're like looking good again. So now it's like, okay, well, Adam and Jules are doing really well. Christian's still there. So that's really good for the, for the short term. And then we have a really good group of younger men and women who show a lot of really good potential. So if we can, you know, get them in the system, have really good, some really good development years, put in a good push to make sure that they, we develop, develop them properly. They can make it to the world cup and they can be in that top 30, top 20, top mm-hmm. 10 even right in 10 years from now. So I think it's possible. Like one girl in particular, you know, world juniors for every world junior she's been in, she's like a top five, top 10 skier. That's really good. And mm-hmm. she's even at the, at the youth level, it's great. But at the junior level, that's like way more relevant. Yeah. So if you can be a top skier as a junior woman, first, second year, whatever, that's always a good indicator that you're going to be a very good and have very high potential to be a top skier at the senior level. So you definitely have to make sure like, you know, hang on to that one, <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. like yeah. Don't, yeah. don't blow it because you can always like teach someone to shoot but it's really hard to teach someone or train someone to be a top, top skier. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's really good potential there. And again, they're like these girls, they're maybe 21. So 10 years from now, oh, man. I mean, they're my age, right? So they're, they're at their second, third Olympics and they potentially are like podium threats. That'd be cool. So, yeah. Fingers on. crossed, right? Yeah. yeah. I like to be optimistic and I think we have really good, Island Canada's pushing things in the right direction and we have the right coaching staff to like, like we have a high performance coaching staff who want to like, they know what it takes to succeed mm-hmm. between Justin and Pavel. So they, they can work with these athletes and just kind of help mold them into high performance athletes who can, nice. who will be able to uh, perform and achieve everything, you know, the rest of us weren't able to do, I think. I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anybody that you think we should talk to in the future? An interesting person. You you mentioned Benny Vager, and uh, and and it would be awesome to uh, to have him on the pause. But any anybody else you can think of that would be an interesting person to talk to? A really good one would be Claire Egan, because as a athlete rep, she has so much insight and knowledge and she can't speak on everything but she would know so much about what happens within the ibu behind the scenes and what they're planning and all the good stuff so she would have so much yeah so much to talk about i think nice and you know i think she's pretty open about talking about what she's allowed to talk about so yeah yeah. (laughs) it'd be really interesting to talk to you know and honestly like benny wager or an Eric Lesser or a Dorothy Weir, like any, of course, any of the top athletes. It's always right. so interesting to 
just to get their insight on stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, like talking to someone, like how does, because even for me, like it's so interesting being able to talk to like a, a Doro or mm-hmm. a Cantant or someone who is like performing at the top level. It's like, well, how, how do you perform at the top level for so long throughout a winter? Right. And like the pressures they must deal with and the stresses they must deal with every race, like every race counts. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah, totally different ball game. And it's something That's that awesome. I don't think I've ever fully, well, I know I've never fully dealt with cause I've never been in that situation. It's like the pressure I feel as more of a mid pack skier is okay. I need to do well to have a good opportunity where it's like, they need to do well, not to like lose, you know, the overall or yeah, like, yeah. They, or lose they spot in well the team. there's like Olympic medals on the line. Right. They know we're theirs as long as they can put it together. And like, that's a totally different mental pressure and approach that they have to take. So that mm-hmm. kind of stuff is always interesting to me. Oh, yeah. For sure. So we had one question from the start, the uh, combination of two sports closest to biathlon. Do you still want to come back oh, to that yeah. or shall we just skip that? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to come up with something like really creative and to be honest, I can't. It's just the thing about biathlon is I can't even think of something more opposite than skiing and shooting, mm-hmm. right? It's like Nordic combined are two sports, but they're kind of both Nordic sports and they both involve skis. So it's, right. it's different, but not really that different almost. Whereas biathlon, yeah, I don't know. You'd have to do something like totally different, like figure skating and skateboarding or something. I don't know, like a summer <laughs> winter sport, yeah, right? yeah. Like an indoor outdoor thing. Totally, totally different. That's like the only way you could do it. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, your sponsors a little bit. Was there anybody else you wanted to shout out or spotlight uh, before we go? Oh, uh, well, I'll just, I think I'll just reiterate like Christoph, uh, Christoph Fag and Clint Cosby have been huge supporters of me and Christian and Emma. So if they're listening, big thanks to both of them for being so supportive for my career. Um, and I mean, okay, there's so many other people, of course, that help out, but those are the two big ones personally. Yeah. And then, yeah, big thanks to family and friends who have always been supportive. And yeah, I think also, I think Bio Canada is like moving things in the right direction. So they've been supportive of me, of course. So thanks for that. And I'm just looking forward to see where, where things go now. Mm-hmm. Well, and thank you for giving Canadians uh, some extra reason to, to watch Biathlon. It is, uh, was, uh, was a great, pleasure to cheer you guys on and, and you as well specifically and uh you definitely will be missed on the tour but uh that's and, how it goes i suppose by non-canadians as well oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well thank you i appreciate that it was uh i have to say it was a lot of fun racing and competing so i think i'll miss it a lot this winter but uh hey it was a good uh, ride. i got one last question for you before you go yeah uh so what are you going to be doing for your brother are you going to be involved in his training and and what are your expectations for him going into next mm-hmm. season so i'm i'm hoping uh the guys will still invite me for like afternoon workouts and easy jogs bike rides stuff like that throughout mm-hmm. the summer fall and i fully expect them to you know i'm going to be working uh but i can i can always make that kind of stuff work 
So mm-hmm. I'm still going to be involved. And I talk to Christian all the time. So, and the other guys. So I'm going to know all the team drama and all the gossip. So I'm going to be <laughs> mostly in the loop, or at least I like to think I'll be mostly in the loop. And then, yeah, for winter stuff, I guess I'm just going to be, I'm going to be getting up early to watch and I'm going to be cheering and I'll just be one of the biggest supporters. So, so maybe, uh, Jordan, maybe we can give Scott a separate section on our podcast for the uh, the gossip and that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. North American teams. Yeah, I'll be your <laughs> Canadian insider. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Hey, if people uh, want to follow you, I you're on Instagram. I know that, but uh, any other like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook handles that you want to share? Just Instagram. It's at Scott Really straightforward. Follow me there. Perfect. Not sure what kind of content I'll be putting out these days, but probably just the usual out and about skiing, running, general, interesting, or what I think is interesting everyday stuff that I do. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Scott. And uh, of course, uh, we we appreciate your your time, um, taking the time to sit down with us and also being the first on our our new section where we... uh, try to look at biathlon through the eyes of, of athletes or coaches or uh, or yeah. people related to biathlon. So we really appreciate it. And uh, and thank you for uh, for doing that. No, I was super happy to come on. It's nice having a biathlon podcast. So hopefully <laughs> people start to tune in, you know, yeah. get the oh, behind the scenes insights. From yeah. So it's voluntary on races, like all that stuff. Well, you know, and and uh, as they slowly but surely, it's growing a little bit, and uh, I'm sure having you on is going to help that out too. I hope so. Absolutely. I'll share it with my my massive social le- media legion of fans, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's awesome. So uh, thank you. I like it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I'll I'll come on anytime. So oh, we would love to have you back. You. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At least Sounds in good. 10 years to see if your predictions came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you never know. I, I'm, I'm feeling confident in my prediction. Yeah. I'd say a couple of years from now when the uh, when the World uh, World Cup is in Canmore to have a uh, special Canadian uh, uh, get-together. It'll be fun. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm looking forward to it because I'm just going to be out volunteering. <laughs> yeah. Fun. Nice. Yeah. I just uh, it'll be fun to just watch and just like see and just know that like the suffering everyone's going through. Yeah. And then I, I'm just like not dealing with it, but I get to enjoy it, you know. Yeah, that'd be cool. Excellent. Anyway. Well, All thanks right. a lot. This is absolutely fun. no, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it.